Hey everyone, this is Tiffany. And this is George. Welcome to our podcast, Richness of the Word. Today we are beginning a new study. We're going to be looking at the book of Esther. We're going to start off with a little overview of the book, looking at some themes, and then we'll also dive into chapter one today. So the book of Esther takes place between the years, around the years 480 to 470 BC in the Persian capital of Susa. This is during the height of the Persian Empire. Um, Previously in Jewish history, the Jews had been uh, put into exile. They were conquered and taken into exile by the Babylonian kingdom. Mm -hmm. And about 40 years or so prior to this, 30 to 40 years prior to this, uh, the Persians had replaced the Babylonian Empire as kind of the, the world empire. And it was actually during this time that they allowed the Jews to return home to Israel. But many Jews, such as Esther and Mordecai, uh, the, the characters from this book, we will see they actually remained in the Persian Empire away from their home. So I really like the book of Esther because it's going to show us that She is a strong woman. She is going to go after what she can to help save her people. The entire Jewish race, basically. Well, not basically. She's going to save the entire Jewish race in her time. I love that we are doing this book. So Esther and Ruth, the book that we just completed, are the only two books in the Bible with women names. And... We will see as we go through this book, you can see some comparisons of Esther and Jesus. As, as we've pointed out previously, you can find Jesus in the Old Testament mm-hmm. if you take the time to read it and look for him. Right. As we will discuss in this book that we are, I'm super excited to get in. And um, it's just very exciting when you can read something in the Old Testament and see, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is, this is, this is, this is Jesus. This is, this is Jesus this right here. This is Jesus. pointing to him right here right. in this very spot. So we're going to get into that. I'm really excited about all of that. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> so Esther, I found like you'll learn about Esther certainly in Sunday school with the kids and everything, because mm-hmm. it's a good historical narrative, tells a story. There's good guys, there's a bad guy, there's heroism, you know, the bad guy gets his comeuppance, the good guys save the day, and it's all nice yes. and everything. It's a great Sunday school story. But you notice, it, I've, I don't know if I can ever recall hearing a sermon on it, like in, in the big church, you know. Um, not even... John Calvin and Martin Luther, two very famous theologians and and preachers, never taught on the book of Esther. And I think one of the main reasons is just because God is never explicitly mentioned in this book. It's the only book of the Bible that does not mention God. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mention prayer or any of those things. We understand this is actually a literary device by the author. I mean, there are times when it talks about how the Jewish people are going to fast. Well, the Jewish people, fasting goes along with prayer. 
that they just come together. But mm-hmm. prayer is left out in this description. So the author is literally making sure he does not mention right. Let me make a God. point to not mention God, right. his sovereignty. Right. And the reason why is just because God's presence is not obvious or even acknowledged usually. Right. When we think of God's mm-hmm. miracles, we think of, oh, uh, the plagues of Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea, right? Right. But God, almost always, right, he's present with his people, though he's often invisible, mm-hmm. right? But his, his providence is real nonetheless. I mean, the pattern of events that we're going to see in the book of Esther, it, they can only be explained by oh, God is working here. Right? There's just way too many, you know, what would look like coincidences. I mean, even in the first uh, two chapters, if the king doesn't get drunk, if Vashti doesn't decide, you know what, I'm not coming. If Vashti <laughs> ends, up, ends up not being, you know, Vashti being dis- uh, deposed, Esther turning out to be very beautiful even, uh, Esther being chosen out of 400 women, Mordecai saving the king's life, and then the king actually forgetting to reward him and, and until later. Right, if later. any of those things hadn't happened, the Jewish people would have been exterminated, and then even the Messiah doesn't come. Mm-hmm. Uh, John MacArthur, a, a preacher out in California, even said, like, there are no miracles in this book the way we think of miracles. But the whole story itself is miraculous. Right. If this would have played out totally different, you and I wouldn't be sitting here discussing how awesome and amazing God is through the mundane works that he does in people's lives. Or when people like Esther step up to save save a group of people. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean... And this is encouraging for us, right? We don't even see it. God is doing so many things in your life, mm-hmm. and you just don't know it because they look ordinary right. or they're like coincidental, right? There's no way Esther and Mordecai would look at this, and, and, and it's not until after they look back and go, whoa, if this, 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 this had not happened, then none of this would have happened. Right. So God's hand is at work. Uh, I love this quote by Tim Keller. Uh, He says, God's silence is not absence, and his hiddenness is not abandonment, right? Mm -hmm. Even though we don't literally see God working, he is. We Mm -hmm. cannot understand or comprehend what's going on. It all looks ordinary stuff, coincidental, but there are no coincidences, There is one more theme that I found, and it's how do we live in an era of moral ambiguity? And this is what I mean. This takes place during the Persian Empire. Really represents the kingdom of this world. If you think about all the kingdoms, the cultures, the governments of of any country in this world that have ever had any kind of power, Mm -hmm. they are... The Persian Empire is very similar to them, as, as we're going to see. And the Jews themselves were a religious minority. They were a religious minority in a culture that was against their values. And this is just like Christians today. If you are a true Bible-believing Christ follower, you are in the minority. Yeah. Right? Your 
thoughts or, or your, what you understand in the Bible and what it teaches about sexuality, about monogamy, and you know, uh, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. You're in the minority. Most people, even people who claim to be Christians, are like, you're a radical, you're intolerant, you're all these other things. You are a religious minority if you are a true Christ follower in America mm-hmm. today. And so, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you follow God in morally and spiritually and culturally ambiguous situations? Right, Mordecai and Esther, we're going to see, they don't have any revelation from God. You need to do this in this situation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They're like, what do we do? We better do the best we can, you know. Right. So it, they needed to trust God and trust that God is going to handle things. And that's what we need to do. So without further ado, let us examine chapter one of Esther. We do highly encourage you to read the chapter before uh, continuing on in this podcast and our, um, our thoughts and examinations mm-hmm. on it. So, chapter one begins with the king throwing a big party. So, chapter one begins with the king throwing a huge banquet. And most scholars actually believe that the king of Persia is actually about to invade Greece at this time. And this is part of the Persian tradition of you actually partied with your nobles and generals and everything while planning your strategies out mm-hmm. and getting ready to uh, conduct your military campaign. So uh, the very famous Persian-Greek war with the, like the battles of Thermopylae and you know the 300 Spartans and stuff, th- that actually was about to happen uh, really between chapters one and two. I thought that was interesting. So we have this party. And we have King Ahasuerus. I believe that's how you pronounce it. I know in Tiffany's Bible, it's King... Xerxes. Right. Which, of course, I had to look up. So Xerxes is the Greek name of this Persian king. And then Ahasuerus is the Hebrew uh, translation, his Hebrew name. So depending on what translation of the Bible you have, you have a different right. name. We'll determine um, what his name is. Right. So I think in the future, I'm just going to call him the king. <laughs> I'll just stick with Xerxes because I think in all of my Bibles, it's Xerxes. All right. Fair enough. Anyway, the, so the king is having this party in Susa, the, which is described the citadel, which is this massive fortress that is towering over the actual city you know, almost like the, the like the Sultan's Palace in Aladdin. You know, that's basically mm. what this citadel is. But it's 180 days. That is a long <laughs> time. What is this, half a year? It's going to take him 180 days to literally show off all of his wealth. He then throws a, a second party. Mm-hmm. This one's just seven days. But it's a seven-day party for literally everybody in the citadel. Everybody in the palace. Uh, I can only imagine it's it's almost like a maybe like a thank you party because mm-hmm. I'm sure all those people in the Citadel had to be very busy for the last 180 days uh, dealing with all the all the food and wine and, and all this other stuff. As I mentioned earlier, right, the Persian Empire is kind of the equivalent for like the kingdom of kingdoms of the world, right? And just like the world, right, it shows us that Persia is all about appearances. Mm-hmm. There's this 
love of money, love of possessions, just all this shallowness and superficiality. Yes. I mean, he goes, this part of chapter one just goes on and on about the silver rings and the marble pillars and the cords of white linen and purple material, Mm -hmm. which purple was... The color purple showed how rich you were because that was a very Mm -hmm. expensive color to have in that time. And it was mainly only kings that had that. So anytime they would throw a party or have have anyone come over, they wanted to show all of the purple that they had because that was very rare and expensive at that time. But he just goes on and on and on about the goblets of gold, Mm -hmm. each one different from the other. Right. And then, as like a climax of the banquet, the king is going to show off his queen, Queen Vashti. And her beauty. Look at how beautiful my wife is. Yeah, even like verse 11, literally it says, for she was lovely to look at. Mm -hmm. In Persia, right, it's quite clear that all that mattered was how, for a man, man, it's how wealthy are you? How powerful are you? And then for like a woman, your value was determined on how physically beautiful you were. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound anything like an American today, but <laughs> no. being sarcastic, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> I know y'all can't see my face, but the first chapter of Esther really calls out not just the Persian empire, but you know, Almost all culture, Western culture today, certainly. Mm -hmm. I want to make a point that the king sent seven men to go get her. It's not, hey, Duke guy. (laughs) (laughs) So he sends seven eunuchs to go get her. It's not just one. He sends seven men to go get his wife. Mm-hmm. To me, this is ridiculous. And if I'm being honest, if I lived in that day and George sent seven <laughs> dudes to come get me, to come to a party, I'd be like, what is going on? I'm not coming just because of how ridiculous well, you're being by sending seven men to come well, get then, me. And then on top of it, it's like, hey, I need you to come uh, stand on this stage so that all these drunk men can look at you. Right. No, that's... <laughs> That's a little ridiculous. Right. It even says here, right, when the heart of the king was merry with wine on verse 10. So this king is clearly drunk. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to finish this off with. I'm going to have Queen Vashti show up. And even there's an emphasis on wearing uh, her crown. Early Jewish interpreters actually have said that it's it's believed that Vashti was going to was going to be required to appear naked in nothing but her crown oh, wow. and have the men look at her. So yes, needless to say, right, Queen Vashti's like, no, thank you. Right. I am not doing that. Appearances come crashing down, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to reveal the weakness of the king. It's going to reveal the, the weakness of, of the kingdom of this world and its values. And it right. really is, this, this scenario, chapter one, we are supposed to laugh at the king and his incompetence, mm-hmm. right? And his advisor's incompetence. 
because Vashti refuses. So it just shows. The king was just showing all this wealth. Look at all he has. This is great. And yet he Look can't. Look at how powerful I am with all of these wonderful things that I'm displaying to you for 187 days, really. Right. If you're to counting the after party. <laughs> and then the highlight is I'm summoning my wife to come. And the one person that it shows that he, in chapter one, that he's saying, you need to do this, right. is saying His no. first order. Right. Yeah, it just says, right, he cannot control the spirit or heart of another human. And then at this point, the king, it's like he loses his mind. We're going to see not just here in chapter one, but in all these chapters, this king can't even make a decision or think for himself. He has to bring in advisors and be like, what do I do? My wife won't come when I call for her. I don't, <laughs> I'm so mad, but I don't know what to do. Right? The king is intimidated by Queen Vashti and then even all his advisors, all these men are also scared of their wives. Yeah. So not only has he sent seven eunuchs to go get her and she says no, he then meets with seven quote unquote wise men of the time mm-hmm. to figure out what do I, what do I need to do with her now? If, if him sending seven men to summon her wasn't ridiculous, I think this next part is even more ridiculous. He's asking them, what, what, well, one, what do I do with her? Because she's not listening to me. And then they all say, oh my goodness, nobody's wives are going to be listening to them because she's not listening to you. So what do we do? I mean, think about this. The people that knew Vashti refused to come was Queen Vashti, the king, the eunuchs. the eunuchs, and then probably just the advisors and noblemen who are king, sitting with the him. King, yeah, who, who the king actually then is asking for advice. I think this probably actually could have been kept under wraps. Right. But yet these wise men are also so foolish. Again, this just shows the foolishness of the world's version of wisdom. Mm-hmm. They then go and broadcast it throughout the <laughs> ato- entire empire. <laughs> hey! Hey! <laughs> Queen Vashti would not come when the king called for her. In case you didn't know, and yeah. if, if you don't speak Greek, we're going to tell you in your language. Right, they had it, yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. So, Vashti, right, gets demoted in the harem. It says she's deposed as queen. She doesn't necessarily get sent away. Um, scholars actually believe that her son... Uh, is going to be King Artaxerxes, which will later replace uh, King Xerxes. So she doesn't get; she's not getting rid of entirely. She's basically going to be demoted in the harem, and she's going to hang out, you know, in the harem. And you know, the king will probably never call on her again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she certainly, she definitely doesn't have the prestige of being queen anymore. I think what's also very important that they emphasize here in in chapter one is that Persian laws cannot be undone. Right, they say that. Right, so if if the law of the Persians gets gets written, signed, you can't just go. The king can't just come back and go. Never mind about that law; it has to be followed, and that's going to be key moving forward in this book. Right, you have to follow through. That's why he is meeting with these men to discuss what to do, so that they can put it in writing, and then if you do want to change something, you mm-hmm. add to it. 
So that's important to keep in mind moving forward also as, as we go into this, uh, this book. That concludes chapter one of Esther. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll look at chapter two, and we'll actually be introduced to the main characters, mm-hmm. Esther and her cousin, Mordecai. Uh, but before we go, we do have a few discussion questions for you to talk about with your family or small group, or, or is just part of your own private reflection. Number one. In light of the overall theme of this book, can you recall a time where mere coincidences were revealed to be God at work in your life? And number two, do you find yourself giving in to the culture's demands on outward appearances and wealth? What steps can you take to focus more on what God says is important? Join us next week as we examine the second chapter of the book of Esther. Thank you for listening, and we pray that the Lord has shown you the richness of the word.